Welcome to Strengthen the Numbers. My name is Wei Chen Yong, a global finance leader that champions environmental sustainability and gender equality. It is my ambition to bring business and social movement leaders to the show, deconstruct with them their stories, lessons learned, into practical advice for us to remain relevant in accounting and finance while making a positive impact to the society. With that, let's go over to the show. Iswan Zakaria is the managing partner of Iswan and Partners, a commercial, technology, and startup law firm in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He has over a decade of legal experience in corporate, commercial, and technology transactions. Iswan has direct experience in acting for online and digital businesses like equity crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending, e-commerce robo-advisory platform, and other disruptive technologies. His involvement in the technology sector also extends to advising fintech clients on regulatory compliance matters as set out by the Central Bank and the Security Commission. He has experience in venture capital fundraising, having acted for startups and investors as well. Iswan is a member of the FinTech Association for Malaysia, and he is active in the Malaysia startup ecosystem where he mentors entrepreneurs in compliance and fundraising matters. He's currently a mentor at Scale Up Malaysia, an incubator for tech startups. He's also a mentor at the Founder Institute, a pre-seed startup accelerator with a presence in more than 180 cities worldwide. We are very pleased to have Iswan on the SITN show today, giving us the perspective as an entrepreneur and from a profession that is facing influx of digital disruption as well. Welcome Iswan. Wei Chen, thank you very much for inviting me and happy to be on the show. Thank you. Very happy to have you as well. Now, as a start, we would like to get to know more about your story. Where did you start your career and how do you get to where you are now? Wei Chen, thanks so much for asking that question. My introduction of my life was rather quite boring in the sense that I started my career in the legal firm just like everybody else as well. Um, Just that growing up as a young person in the environment that I was in, in, I always been passionate about technology and I always take time to... I remember when my mother bought me a first desktop, it was Windows 95 or something like that. I would go and disassemble the desktop and take out the whole thing. Can you imagine the kind of horror that my mother had when she saw I had to put it all together and and she knew at that time that was my interest. So growing up, I always had a very strong interest in the technology space. So ever since I was practicing law, I always yearned to be able to uh, be involved in technology. So I realized that after half half my career, which was around five years or so, I was involved in the normal corporate bread and butter, if you like, the M&A the joint venture and all the shareholders agreement stuff that typically what a corporate lawyer would do. But through try and errors, I would be someone who perhaps from a recruiter standpoint, one of those candidates that would not be a good candidate in the sense that if you look at my resume, I'm one of those people that would stay in a company for a year or two and then we leave 
do something else. So leaving employment, starting my own practice, which what I'm doing now, running my own law firm is something that was, I think, a natural course of progression. So to answer your question, how did I start my career? It was something that I always felt of doing, which is to be involved in technology. It's just that I decided to become a lawyer probably because too much influence in the American Hollywood shows, uh, which is again, not a very interesting way to start. But again, I mean, if you want to be honest about things, that's essentially how it all started. So how it all started was because always been interested in technology and then started my work as a corporate lawyer and then slowly ventured into technology space. So it was all through a trial and error and eventually made me where I am today. So the law firm now is one of the partners. It's been over a year now. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to see more progress moving forward. You are very humble, Iswan. I mean, it, it is very interesting so-called career journey that you have. Yes, you may have started like most of the people, but you have taken a very different path and you were very true to your your passion, that is technology. And then you, you strike on your own. So it's quite fascinating. And with your passion with technology i'm very sure is one and partners it's a bit of a different kind of law firm so you want to share with our listeners a little more about the law firm how does it different from a traditional law firm especially from a technology standpoint yes of course i mean which from a technology standpoint i do not know whether the law firm is perhaps i could say that the way how i have branded the law firm is such a way that we are a online or, or, or cloud-based law firm in the sense that uh, you can forget the hassle of physical meeting. Uh, you can always meet us online anyway. In other words, you can get into a, jump into a Zoom call or anything. So, so that's something that is not, is not unusual. Um, and I've been grateful in the sense that the, the fact that I have made a conscious decision to brand the law firm as a technology or startup focused law firm that have essentially put us in a certain vertical that other corporate law firm may only put startup or tech company as just another practice area that they may offer apart from other things that they already do. So not trying to put myself any different from other law firms, just that in my case, I have to be aware of my limitation as a sole proprietor for the time being and always in answering your question about how are we different, that we really try our best to leverage on technologies when we do our work. And obviously, cloud storage is something that now sounds very elementary, given the whole pandemic situation sort of like accelerated the progress. As we see now more, uh, even brick and mortar businesses now realize that they cannot afford not to have an online presence. So to really simplify the law firm uh, is really a technology and startup focused law firm in the sense that we really focus in this area, which is not something new if you look at other more mature jurisdictions, like perhaps even in the Silicon Valley, you have so many uh, big law firms like Fenwick and West, Oric, and other things that uh, Morrison Forrester, who are already focusing in, in early stage companies and, and startups. So what I'm doing is something perhaps only new in the Malaysian sense of the word, just that there are also other law firms who are also offering similar services to the same kind of clientele which I am offering right now. 
Indeed, very interesting. I mean, that conscious decision that you made when you started the law firm proved to be, you know, something that is pandemic resilient in, in the ways of working that you guys are, are engaging and, and working with the client and future proven as well. So maybe describe a little more about the role of technology because it's, it's very relevant to the accounting and, and finance um, profession as well. Share with the listeners how that has disrupted the legal profession and what have you had to do to, to change, to adapt and, and thrive in, in this environment? Well, Wei-Chen, um, this is the question that uh, interestingly I get asked a lot. Unfortunately, the answer is not very positive because as much as I like to say that the law firms or legal industry has been progressing in terms of adopting new technologies, unfortunately, we don't see that as much going on, even not just in Southeast Asia, but also other parts of the world as well, simply because the law firm structure um, are still very traditional and very hierarchical, as you also know, same goes to uh, accounting as well, where billable hours is always a default rule. And unfortunately, unlike technology companies where you can scale um, your uh, business or your service by just increasing the bandwidth or just increasing the traction, uh, law firms like any other service providers, even like medical profession where we offer our time for money. So we are in the business of selling time, so to speak. So there's only a limit on how much time that we can sell. So inherently, there is a time restriction or physical limitation as to how much time that we can sell in a day. So technologies helps immensely in the sense that allows us to be able to have this kind of composition that we have right now, but at the same time, simplify uh, some of the rudimentary or uh, usual work that lawyers would do, which is, like you already know, document review. But unfortunately, these solutions from a legal firm standpoint are still rather costly prohibitive, which is why you don't see many law firms adopting this kind of solution simply because, uh, or legal tax solution as they like to brand themselves, simply because, um, to put it bluntly, it is cheaper to pay an intern or paralegal or first year associate in Malaysia than to pay for a yearly licensing fee. So the economics doesn't really make sense from a technology adoption standpoint. So for us to really see real innovation uh, would really be a bit more time for us to wait. To hopefully the technology could also be more affordable for it to be more uh, adopted in a, in a wider scale manner. So I'm sorry if this question that you asked a pessimistic perspective, but I mean, lawyers are also inherently risk averse, but um, that's also another angle as to why uh, we don't see as many uh, legal tax solutions being deployed simply because lawyers are also still very concerned as to whether or not the solutions that they're going to use would be um, workable in the sense that we're not getting them into trouble in the event that they were to rely on them heavily. So there are some solutions that are already being used, like cloud storage, for example. So many people, lawyers are already using um, cloud to store some of the documents. But again, um, physical documents or using uh, papers will, will still be around. So as much as we like to say that we have low carbon footprint, we still need to use uh, papers and some documentation and, and again um, to really answer your question yes I, I do think that there are some opportunities in the immediate term like what we're seeing right now 
more law firms are leveraging on, on, on video conferencing using online tools like Google Meet and Zoom to be able to interact with their clients, conducting webinars, but in actual technology tools like document review, automation, uh, still a bit slow when it comes to adoption. You know, interesting view. I, I don't think that is a pessimistic view, as you call it, but rather a, a very pragmatic view in terms of looking at where we are right now. For a very ancient profession, I would think, the, the law profession, the, the time limitation, I do understand and, and kind of appreciate that as well. But just in my mind, I was thinking, is there a possibility with technology that you can multiply the time or you know move on to some sort of self-service model Again, this will be kind of applicable for accounting and finance profession as well. But, but those, I guess, we will see and technology for sure will continue to evolve. So um, we just need to be mindful and, and keep that open mind. And, you know, earlier on, I was sharing about, you know, accounting and finance profession has a lot of parallel uh, similarities with the uh, law profession. So if you're seeing an example or lesson learned that uh, you think you want to share with us listeners, what would that be from a technology disruption and adaptation perspective? Well, I think more and more service providers are now realizing the importance of having an online present. I know this sounds a bit like trying to preach to other fellow professionals who are currently listening, but the idea is as a service provider, as a professional, um, the value of the advice that you give is not just a mere advice. In other words, from an economic standpoint, it's not just a mere commodity. I think that is the point that I would like to make. If there is one point that I could take from this conversation, that would be the emphasis that I'm trying to make here is that as an accountant or as a lawyer for that matter, any profession that you like to put there, the value of the work that you do is not just a mere service or commodity, but the advice that you give. I think that would be the trend moving forward as how technologies will come over and swoop or change the way how we all work. And we're already seeing that in other parts of a more mature jurisdiction, like in the United States, where the document reviews are not really being done by first year or second years anymore, or associates anymore are being done by automation through document scans and they just the system just simply essentially extract the important commercial terms and highlight it for the partners to review. So so that is coming soon. Just that I would like to think that as a service provider, our role is not just merely selling commodities. Essentially for a client standpoint, it's not just giving the cheapest, most affordable advice, but also the value of the advice that you give. So I would like to think that as lawyers or as accountants, we are knowledge brokers. So as a knowledge broker, it sounds very fancy, I know, but as a knowledge broker, what we do essentially is to broker knowledge. So you may know certain things that I do not know, but that's fine. So what we do essentially is to offer the best kind of advice that we can give to a client. And I like to think about the recent interview that I saw, um, which a senior lawyer mentioned that a good advice sometimes has a no. So in other words, not all advice is a yes. So sometimes a good advice is also a no. So I think the, the trend uh, moving forward, this is my prediction. Again, my prediction may not be correct, but I think 
um, we are seeing a new trend of younger professionals who are in the what people say a passion economy and, and you can find an extensive discussion about this on Anderson Horowitz as a partner there who wrote about how that is going to change the future of work where people are able to be able people are able to offer their expertise or their passion as a way to earn an income and we're seeing a general increase of trend where you see seasoned journalists working for fortune magazine or fortune working for rolling stone now leaving their paying jobs to start their own publication with with other independent publications like substack or review or medium so I think for accountants and lawyers as well, I think more and younger millennials or Gen Y will be trying to do the same thing because as you already know, um, not the younger generation are not the kind of people that will stay in the company or big for, for more than five, even more than two years because they are looking for something completely different. And research have shown in so many different jurisdictions that salary is not the biggest uh, benchmark in terms of what they look for. They look for satisfaction, they look for work-life balance. So technology is essentially just a complementary part. And, and, and they are young, tech-savvy and with sizable disposable income. And they're always looking for uh, new ways to really um, make best of whatever limited disposable income they have. And this is a generation that really different in the sense that they are used to not owing, own, owning stuff. So from an accounting standpoint, they don't own anything. They are so used to paying for subscription. They don't pay for movies. They use Netflix. They don't pay for music. They use Spotify. They are very familiar with subscription-based models. Like what you mentioned earlier, accounting, as we already know, there's so many uh, software as a service or SaaS model out there. And even law firms are trying to explore a similar model that combination they're still trying to work on the revenue models so i don't know whether that answers your question Richard. you have thank you is one there are a lot of good advice in there in fact some of the perspective coming from you you're part of the generation as well uh is that the millennial or the y generation you're in but differentiation for sure uh, and the oh, millennial millennial oh, okay millennial. <laughs> All right, so for our millennial listeners, you definitely can resonate with what Iswan has shared earlier. But from a value standpoint, um, I think the advice is really true, regardless of what profession you're in. The value that you're able to deliver, the advice to, that differentiate yourself than the rest of the people, that, that is where you don't commoditize. And it's good that you share with our listeners about that generation, what the future generation is looking for in terms of the work that they're doing. I never heard of this passion economy, but for sure I'm going to check that out. So the passion economy and what they will do and, and ultimately that will drive the economy so, as well. Yeah. yeah, so on that note, if I could just add a bit, like, so you would know gig economy, right? The yes. gig economy worker, like the the food delivery rider, yes. or the Grab or Uber driver. So these are, in a legal sense of the word, they are independent contractors. In other words, most of them do not want to deliver food. So most of them do not want to drive 10 or 14 hours a day. Yep. driving people around in their cars. But, but that's what they do because they get paid a cut based on the amount of rights that they do every day. And, and in Malaysia, is a big thing right now because of the lockdown. And, and you see the local players, uh, Food Panda and, and Grab Food, uh, yes. which is uh, related to Grab, which is another unicorn. Uh, and they are making a lot of money simply because of the lockdown and the government is not allowing people to eat in the eateries. And therefore, 
all these riders indirectly are getting a lot of income but unfortunately how this is different in the sense that they are not full-time employees as you already know but the passion economy on the other hand relates to people who really love what they do so I don't know whether you've heard this article by Kevin Roose which is from uh, Wired magazine so he wrote about 1,000 true fans so what he argued essentially in that article which you can find uh, or listeners can look out essentially what he argued is that because of the internet and technology that has allowed us to live in a global world, you really don't need, I mean, if you want to, for you to live a comfortable life, you only need 1,000 people or 1,000 fans, as he likes to say, who are willing to buy products from you. So if you are a musician, you play the guitar, you only need 1,000 people to subscribe to your lessons or to buy your ebook, for example. So if you are someone who is in an accounting space, you don't need, because of the nature in which how you provide um, your, your blog, your writing, your YouTube channel. And we're seeing this also in Malaysia. There's a lady, uh, and there's, a, there's a couple called Sugu and her husband. Uh, the husband is Sugu and the, the wife is Pavitra. So they are a couple and they, the, the wife the, is housewife and the husband is, an, is a general estate worker and they literally live in an estate plantation. But the wife loves to cook and she just used her normal um, smartphone and started recording herself uh, cooking and started posting on, on YouTube. And now I think they have close to uh, 2 million followers, if I'm not wrong. So then, and they've started getting the Google uh, ads chat because there are so many people viewing their their videos and the Prime Minister of Malaysia has started sending her gifts and things like that. So this is wow. a new passion economy, which I think is going to be the trend moving forward. And you know, based on the current statistics, people are losing their jobs because of the situation that we are having now and the impending recession that's happening. So I am very passionate about this passion economy simply because I feel that uh, it really allows for, for people to truly harness the power of, of technology, essentially the global connectedness that we have right now. And because of the internet, it allows for the distribution channel, as you like, in the supply chain sense mm. of things for you to deliver content directly to your end user, which is your audience or your fan. So this is why I'm very excited uh, in that sense. I think that's something that would really be very interesting to explore. And um, I'm sure you've heard uh, Seth Godin, who is a very internet marketing guru, has written about this a lot. Essentially, he said, don't forget the people in the middle. Just think about those people in the fringes, people who are on the tail end, people who are early adopters, people who are queuing up to buy the latest iPhone because these are people who are always trying to find new things and they're always finding new solutions. And I think there are those people out there simply because you need to stop looking at Malaysia as a Malaysia, Singapore as Malaysia, uh, Singapore as Singapore because we are now living in a global connected world and that's how technology has really changed the way how, how people deliver value or service. And that's why I'm interested in this. As a lawyer, I've gotten clients that found me on simple Google search. We get into we got into a Zoom call and they, uh, I sent them a fee code and they paid the fee. I did my work and I I don't I never actually met them physically at all. So I'm lucky in the sense that the people that I work with are young, tech savvy, and they're not very fussy about face to face meetings. So I think for young listeners out there seeking to embark on their own someday, they should really look at trying to find a niche. Um, you can also perhaps just explore maybe small medium enterprises or only people in the 
fashion uh, uh, space or people who are freelancers for that matter. So, so that's something that I really like to just spend a bit more time. So I hope that's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. It is very valuable advice. For sure, I'm going to post passion economy on our SITN resource page um, once we publish the podcast. So thank you for that. And, and you know, with, the, with your interest, with the belief and the passion that you have around technology and how we should differentiate our services and value proposition as well, describe to our listener, how do you then support your client and various stakeholders a global stakeholders in this case in the startup ecosystem? I mean, Wei Chen, I run a very small practice. So currently, I do everything myself. So that is good from a client standpoint because that is good and bad if you, if you think about it simply because as far as client is concerned, the client knows that he or she is dealing directly with me. But it may not be good in the sense that, like what I mentioned to you earlier, there is a time limitation in terms of how much time I can spend in the day doing work and obviously uh, writing content and doing business development as well. So how I help, like what I mentioned to you earlier as a knowledge broker, what I do is that I also work a lot with other ecosystem enablers in Malaysia and also in a regional manner. And things like LinkedIn has also benefited immensely where you can simply connect with someone and send them a message and ask them to get into a call and, and they always tend to be very friendly and you can always tell them what you're trying to do so long as you're not trying to solicit or trying to sell some stuff. So it's all about building new connection, which is why I think it's very important for young uh, listeners who are trying to get themselves a footing in the industry to really start connecting with people and do it in a manner that is professional and trying to learn. And... And what we do on the law firm side is that uh, we try our best to connect with other existing players. What I've done on the law firm side is that I connect with uh, government agencies like Magic, for example. So Magic is a government agency that is trying to promote entrepreneurship in Malaysia. And another agency is MTech, which is a Malaysian Development Digital Economy Corporation, which is an uh, agency trying to spearhead the digital transformation across government sectors, including private as well. So what I do is instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, it's just to work with existing ecosystem enablers. So again, I like to re-emphasize this. Again, the, the true value of us uh, as service providers, as accountants, as lawyers, we are like the lubricants, you know, the lubricants that fuels the, the economic system, if you like, where we make sure that transactions proceed smoothly. So if you are uh, advising a transaction as an M&A or due diligence for that matter, you want to make sure that the buyer or the seller that you are working with uh, are paying or receiving a right consideration based on the valuation or the, the due diligence or the audit that you've done. So same goes to us as lawyers as much as we like to say that this is a trust-based world, a capitalism system that we work in. Transactions are obviously need to be put in writing so that there will be no misunderstanding between the parties involved. So why do we need this? I mean, we, we are the people that make sure that transaction move on smoothly. So I think that's why it's really important that we know that our value as a service provider is not just merely giving advice, but also uh, in my scenario, working with early stage uh, technology companies who needs mm. a lot of holding in the sense that they need a lot of support, not just in the advice sense of the word, 
but also perhaps just connecting them with uh, other people that could be useful in their business that they're trying to operate. So this is also an ongoing debate in uh, Silicon Valley uh, law firms. So what Silicon Valley law firms do is that they don't just give legal advice, but they also open doors in the sense that connecting uh, their clients with potential investors or VCs that may be interested to invest. So from an ethical standpoint, um, that may or may not be an ethical issue depending on how you look at it. From a business standpoint, it makes sense in the sense that your relationship with the client is not just a client, but also uh, enabling them to be able to get fundraised and things like that. So mm. I, I leave it for the listeners and, and also others to really make a judgment whether or not as a service provider, your role is not just limited to just based on what is in the scope of work, but also to go beyond than what is expected, which is what I think client wants in the current time and age, which is not just merely giving advice, but also as a business advisor to, to help them achieve their business goals. Yeah, it's, it's the same for the finance professional. People or businesses are looking for someone that can business partner. So when you talk about business partner, will be to the concept that you described about as an advisor, as somebody that connect the dot for your client or for your stakeholders. But it's good that you know, you're leveraging all the other players in the ecosystem, given the fact that you're right now currently one person running the practice, but that can then solve some of your time challenges. Now, you've interacted very often with accounting and finance profession. Um, you've given some very good advice in terms of you know, differentiation, value creation, but if you were to look at this profession, the accounting and finance profession, for them to do better, and to be better prepared for the future, to stay relevant as well. Um, let's say for the next, you know, 12 months, what would that one thing that you think the accounting and finance profession can do different or better? Well, Rachel, this is a very big question. I'm sure you've, you've spent a lot of time thinking about that as well. Therefore, and we give it to you because it's an important so, question. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't want to say that we are in the same boat in the sense that we are a subset of a larger set of service providers or professionals. I think given how fluid and how things are changing in such a rapid way and do not know whether having a three years, two years business plan is still relevant in the current time or age where things are shifting and, and changing very rapidly in terms of status quo. But something that will never go out of fashion would probably be to continue keeping yourself updated. I mean, that's what Warren Buffett would say. I mean, the legendary investor, the best investment you can make is in yourself. So, and other futurists, if you like, have also spoken the same thing. Like Yuval Noah Harari wrote extensively in his uh, book, Homo Deus and Homo Sapien, that as anyone for that matter, if you are trying to help your kids stay relevant in the future is to not really to learn coding or programming for that matters, but to learn to be adaptable. In other words, because of the, the world that is constantly changing, you need to be responsive and to be able to adapt. And how do you adapt is obviously the big question mark. But the point that um, I think what Yuval Noah Hari was trying to make was is that you need to be able to anticipate what is happening. Obviously, sounds very easy when you say it but not when you're actually trying to understand what's happening but again really trying to see how do you create value to the clients or the people that you work with because they as an accountant or as a finance professional you have a fiduciary duty just like we do as lawyers to be able to give the best advice that you can give based on your ability and obviously if you don't think 
that you are in a position you do you, to do so, you shouldn't take up the brief. But point I'm trying to make is that the value of the advice is not something that obviously you can quantify it, but also there are those advice that you can't quantify. I think I don't know whether I'm making sense here, but the point I'm trying to make is that um, from a value creation standpoint, there are initial uh, preliminary work that you do in terms of perhaps putting yourself out there as an authority in the particular subject matter. Again, I'm a strong believer in specialization. Again, some may argue that may not be good because of the shifting uh, economic situation that we are in, but I still feel that, I mean, if you are a small firm, accounting firm or finance firm providing accounting services to your client, you may only need five, ten decent paying clients to really run a relatively uh, stable firm. So, so that is something that is not necessary without being too luxurious in terms of uh, revenue. But if obviously you want to grow the firm, you can always hire more people. But the point I'm trying to make in this question is that the value creation is a very subjective thing, but you know that you created value if you've created something that is practical for someone to use. So yep. as someone who deals a lot with early stage companies and they always have this certain uh, reluctance to engage accountants or lawyers for you and me because of fear that will be expensive. I, I, don't, I don't know whether we are actually expensive. We can spend the whole day today arguing whether or not we are expensive, but I think... We'll find you um, back to our I show another I time. I <laughs> don't, don't think we are expensive. I think we are, there is a cost attached to the value in the work that we do, but I think many people don't also realise that, I don't know whether it's the same in, in Singapore or in Australia for that matter, is that in Malaysia, um, you can meet any service provider or you can meet an accountant, you can meet a lawyer just by booking a, a consultation meeting. So obviously, it's not easy to hold a face-to-face -face meeting now, but the first consultation meeting is generally free. So this is not difficult to find and be able to come up with a final decision as to which uh, accountant or lawyer that you want to use because you can always speak to them and really understand which of them really understands your need best or really understand your business. But again, ultimately, you also want to work with someone that, that you like. So that's also something that is also important as a matter of client service. You're absolutely right. But the key message around, you know, be adaptable and responsive and anticipate what to come. I guess that is key for all of us to stay relevant into the future. Now, Iswan, we're going to switch gear a little bit right now. Some lighthearted questions so that our listener get to know you a little more as a person, not so much as a lawyer. So you're ready for those fun questions? Yep. All right. <laughs> the first one. If you, you could recommend one book, can be an audio book as well to our listeners, what would that be and why? As you know, I like buying books, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'll read them. I don't know whether it's a common situation for most of the listeners as well. But I mean, it's very hard when someone asks what book to read. But if there is one book that I could think of right now that perhaps would resonate most of the questions that you've asked, that would be uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. So Peter Thiel was, as you know, um, he was a founder of PayPal and they merged the company together with Elon Musk and now he runs several other, he runs his own fund. So Zero to One is a book essentially written based on a lecture that he ran in Stanford. So it's an interesting book. Essentially, it's a note on startups and how to build the future. So that 
book really changed the way how we see uh, companies like Google, for example, Microsoft, and a simple conventional wisdom that you like they like to tell everybody is that they run a very competitive business that they are in advertising industry like for example google and facebook will always tell from a pr standpoint their pr offices will always say that they run a com- competitive advertising industry and they're competing with so many other advertising firms to compete in terms of selling ad advertising spaces but in actual fact they make uh, google's and, and facebook revenue i think a substantial portion i think 60 70% of their revenue came from online advertising. So it's very an interesting book really to really uh, change how you see the world and how you can also offer better value as a service provider. I would really recommend that book, uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Thank you for that. I'm sure our listener will check that out and we will also post it on our SITN page as well. Now, um, we talk a lot about you and your profession. What are some of the common misconceptions people may have about you? A good thing of one right now, and that would be, I mean, obviously for you to qualify as a lawyer, you need to uh, read law and people, uh, most people always have this preconceived misconception that I, they always ask where did you study in the UK uh, fortu- unfortunately or fortunately I never uh, I didn't study abroad I studied locally here in Malaysia and it was just a small uh, local university so I think the point I'm trying to make from this conversation is that some I came from a humble beginning I grew up in a small village in Kedah which is a northern peninsula state uh, there are two million people Uh, living in my uh, state in Kedah where most of the people are either factory workers or paddy farmers because paddy is a big agriculture thing in Kedah uh, or they like to say my state is a rice bowl of the country. So coming from a humble beginning, I always felt that I wanted to do something big. So I don't know whether what I'm doing now is something big already. Obviously, it's a work in progress, but social mobility is something that is always a close uh, topic for me. So what I try to do in my free time, which I'm very grateful for, which allows me to do more pro bono in terms of mentoring, uh, which is what you highlighted earlier. Um, another non-profit that I spend quite a bit of time is actually Closing the Gap. So uh, Closing the Gap is a non-profit that helps underserved students. So students who are in their final uh, year before their Uh, examination which will decide whether they get into university or not. So what this non-profit does is that they pair these students who generally uh, the only perhaps generally in a family that has, no one in the family has gone into university. So what they do is that they pair up with professionals like me, people like yourself to, to mentor them for the next one or two years to help them understand what are their challenges and to see how we can Uh, help bridge the education inequities. So what, what a common misconception would be uh, coming from a humble beginning, you can break it or make it in this profession so long as you really work hard for it. So uh, I don't want to know whether it's a very, I don't want to say useless advice. It's an advice that is always a given to work hard, but how much hard work do you mean in a day? So, so what misconception about me is that I, I studied locally and I managed to really find a niche in the sense that working in a technology company and a startup, just that uh, what I have been able to do perhaps is to really build that relationship with people. So 
So if you ask what would be a good advice to young listeners would probably be to focus on the relationship. I think this is what a good salesperson will also probably tell you instead of you go to a sales gallery when you want to buy a car, the, the sales assistant will not ask what car you want to buy. They will ask about you or you about your family, really nothing about buying the car at all. I think the, the, the same principle really applies about when you engage a potential client. It's not about trying to convert him or her as a client, but more about really trying to understand the person, what the person's concern, what the person's fears are. That's, I think, really important point. So I know, I know it's a bit of an extended answer about me common no, misconceptions. Not at all. Not at all. You've gone a long way, is one. I mean, that regardless of where you and I study, I think ultimately we are all one human being or one global citizen in that sense. So thank you for sharing those advice with, with our listeners and very practical, pragmatic advice as well on how to adapt and how to continue to thrive into the digital future. The advice or the preference for the millennia, the passion economy, yes, that was what you shared earlier, uh, will certainly be something that resonates with, with a lot of our younger generation of listeners. I guess for me, the key takeaway is we all need to be adaptable and be responsive and anticipate what to come as well. And that value creations is going to evolve um, and change as, as we progress. So thank you so much, Izwan. And I'm sure some of our listeners will be very keen to stay in touch and continue the conversation with you. What will be the best way for them to get in touch with you after the show? You can always send me an email, very responsive. You can always book a free call uh, on, the, on the website. So happy to connect with the listeners as well. Thank you, Izwan. You take care and stay safe. Thank you for having me on the show. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed the show today. If you'd like to know more of our guest mentor today, their bio and resources, you can find all that at sitnshow.com. You will also get access to early show, blog, also for subscription to our newsletter for activities and resources that are going to help you continue to build your strength and capabilities along the journey of finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback and suggestion. Or if there's a guest mentor that you'd like to hear on the show, drop me a message on LinkedIn. I would love to connect and hear from you. Let us keep building our strength in the numbers while growing a finance community that contributes positively to the society.